relevant is that line that Patrick just reminded us of, when our eyes shall close in death. And I heard there was some good conversations in small groups afterwards, uh, and that's good. I heard there was some less than good conversations. Some people didn't want to talk about death. Uh, it's not an easy topic uh, when your small group leader stares at you and says, so, you want to die? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly how to answer that. So, you know, maybe tonight you can talk about experiences you've had where you've, you've seen death. You know, have you ever lost anyone close to you? Uh, you could ask one another, you know, what, what, what is it about death that makes people feel so uncomfortable, so afraid? And we left this morning's talk thinking about the concept of going home. We talked about those missionaries who came home without fanfare or celebration, and they were reminded that the place that they returned to, though it was the place they were from, was not their home. And in glowing letters behind me is that word that is our theme for camp this year, citizen. And it's an important word in the Bible. And there's a passage of scripture I want to turn your attention to tonight that will help us understand what this word means to us as Christians, what the significance of this word is. With that idea of going home in our minds, the concept of home, something familiar to all of us, I want you to open your Bible to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. If the book of Philippians were a movie, or if there was a movie behind the book, you would see the Apostle Paul, that great missionary, to the Gentiles, to the nations, chained up. He'd have some kind of chain attached to his wrist or to his ankle. And he would be under house arrest, not in his own house, but in some borrowed quarters. And on the other end of that chain, you would see a Roman soldier. Picture one of those guys in the movie Gladiator with the big feather brush helmet, with the breastplate and a sword. That's what they really wore. That's what they really looked like. And that soldier would have been attached to Paul. And if you hadn't seen this movie before, you would assume that that apostle was a serious criminal, that he'd done something very wrong, that he was awaiting trial to be punished for his crimes, and you would assume the letter that he's writing is some sort of appeal to the governor or an opportunity for a last will and testament. But that's not at all what was happening there. You see, the Apostle Paul had been on a journey, a journey that began with a vision that he received from God. The first vision he received was the one that changed his life completely. His name used to be Saul and his profession. He was a professional religious person. He was a, a leader in Judaism. And as a leader, he saw this new sect of Judaism called Christianity as a threat and as blasphemy until one day Jesus himself appeared to Saul, knocked him down, 
and changed his life forever by calling him to be a disciple. That was the first vision, and if you back this this thing up to those days, that was when everything changed for Saul. He had become now zealous no longer for the destruction of Christianity, but the promotion of Christianity. You know, it's a conversion like that. It's a change like that that reminds us that Christianity is real, that God's power is able to change a person, to change their inner convictions, to change their motivations, to make them different. And that's exactly what happened to Saul. And so he became Paul the Apostle. And he received another vision from God. This time it was a man from Macedonia calling him to this far-off place called Macedonia. Come, he said, and, and teach us. Come and help us. And Paul knew exactly what that meant. And so he started out on one of his many missionary journeys. And eventually he would end up in a little place called Philippi. And as he went to Philippi, You can read this story in Acts 16. Uh, Amazing things happened. When Paul went somewhere, he took the gospel with him. That message of salvation was with him. And he went and he taught and people responded. And the story in Acts 16 is an incredible one. And if you were to watch that story as the background of the Philippians movie, you would hear singing in a little jail. And then you'd hear the formation of a little church. And then you'd hear a slave girl changed from being demon-possessed to being a follower of Jesus. And then you'd hear the testimony of a jailer and his whole family who saw the miraculous escape from jail that God orchestrated and gave his life to Christ and his whole family with him. You'd meet a lady named Lydia and her household who start this little church made up of Jews and Gentiles in Lydia's house in this outpost of a Roman colony in a town called Philippi. Eventually, Paul would leave there. He'd be put under arrest, and he would want to write these people a letter. And now you zoom into that scene of Paul at a table, chained to a Roman soldier, not sure what was going to happen next, but very concerned that he would write to these precious Christians that he had met that he had ministered to, that he had told the gospel to, that he had seen God change them like God had changed him. And so he writes them this sweet little letter that's become a favorite of so many Christians throughout the centuries. It's a letter whose predominant theme is joy. If I were to read you the whole thing, and I won't do that tonight because you would pass out, it would be about 2,200 Well, not about. It would be 2,286 words long. Not a long letter. You could commit to read it in a week, and you'd only have to read half a page a day. Many Christians have chosen the book of Philippians to be a book that they memorize because of its practical and helpful themes. There's only 104 verses in this little letter, and it's a letter that, that Christians love because joy dominates this passage. It's a letter with four brief chapters, but joy appears over and over again. If I were to read it to you, you'd hear that word joy 16 times. You'd hear the name of Christ 50 times. And that's because what Paul is expressing to this little church in this little Roman colony, this outpost called Philippi, 
is that joy is found in Christ, and Christ is our joy. You'd learn the meaning of the gospel in this letter, the message that God saves sinners from himself, from his wrath, that he can forgive them because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. You'd learn how Christians are supposed to relate to one another in relationships. You could learn about prayer in this letter. You could learn about evangelism. You could learn about how to deal with your own personal goals, ambitions, and aspirations. There's a lot in this letter about self-denial, about theology, about who Christ is, and how God, a very God, could become a human being with flesh and blood. You'd learn about the self-denial of Christ, the cross from God's perspective, a call to suffer, faith and obedience, a significant discipleship paradigm that Paul and Timothy spelled out for this church. And this would also teach you Paul's most complete spiritual autobiography. You'd learn about Paul's hardships and difficulties. And you'd see the necessary pride-crushing abandonment that we must embrace if we're to follow Christ and lose this unswerving commitment we have to ourselves. Paul would boast in Christ in this letter. He'd speak of the return of Christ and fighting worldliness and a joyful pursuit of persevering in your faith and developing a reputation for gentleness and attacking anxiety through prayer and reforming our thought life and the secret of contentment and a resolve to grow in graciousness and Christ-likeness. You see, the heart of this letter is, is that these Christians would make spiritual progress. It's verse 27 of chapter 1. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's concerned about a Christian's conduct, that their profession would match their life. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, he starts to wrap this letter up. But it's there that he grabs onto this concept, a concept he introduces in the first chapter, but develops in verse 19 and 20 and 21. Verses that teach us about this word citizen. Verses that teach us what this longing for home is all about. Verses that teach us how we need to view ourselves and our identity and where we ought to live and, and why we long for things that we can't get, and what those longings are, are rooted and grounded in. The big message of the book of Philippians is joy in Christ to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ who brings us that joy. But in this little section, verse 20, look at it with me, of chapter 3, he gives us such important instruction on what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. What it means to live as a citizen in a world that we've never been to. But if you belong to Christ, you're destined there. You belong there. Your true and lasting identity is there. It's the only place that really will ever make sense to you. I'm a big fan. I think that was making the microphone go, it was also making my shins very cold. So we're talking about citizenship. Look at verse 20, what it says. But our citizenship is in heaven 
and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Wow. There's only two parts to this sermon, this sermon on citizenship. And it's really, in these verses, just two marks of what a citizen of heaven is all about. Two ways that you could identify someone from heaven, someone who really will belong in heaven, someone who is suited for heaven, someone who is destined to find heaven as their home. A citizen of heaven can be identified in two ways, according to Philippians 3.20 and 21. And tonight I want you to think, do, do these two marks, do these two attributes, do these two descriptions of a citizen of heaven, do they match me? I want you to ask yourself that question. Do they match you? Do you have these two qualities, these two attributes, these two marks of being a citizen of heaven? I could ask you where you're from, and you might tell me you're from Alaska. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of you are from Alaska. And I don't, I've never been to Alaska. Uh, I'm, I'm not opposed to Alaska. I've just never been there. But I know some stuff about Alaska. I know they have bears. I know they have long days or nights. Days. Yeah, see, I got it. See, I know tons about Alaska. I know that... There's a city there called Juneau. Do you know that? Yeah. I know that that's a really tired joke. I know that some of the men in Alaska have beards, like that man. And I think it's so his face doesn't freeze and fall off. I think there's things that you could identify as an Alaska person that would remind you that that person's also from Alaska. Obvious things like an Alaska driver's license. Obvious things like the ability to speak Eskimo. <laughs> you know what I mean. Or maybe I should talk about a place I understand a little bit more. I'm from a distant country called New Mexico. And people from New Mexico are neither new nor Mexican. <laughs> but you can identify us because there's things about us uh, that my adopted people group, Californians, don't understand. Like in New Mexico, we would never call the city where the docks are in Los Angeles San Pedro. We would never do that in New Mexico. It offends us. We say San Pedro. <laughs> We're taught from a young age, even the gringos, to speak Spanish properly. It's important to us. We don't say San Pedro. We don't say Carpinteria. <laughs> it's just a New Mexico thing. We can eat spicy foods, we're New Mexican. So wherever you're from, whether you're an Arizona person or an Alaskan or a Californian, and you know, you can identify Californians by their, their accent. There's some Minnesota girls here, I met them at church on Sunday. There's a Minnesotas. And you can identify a Minnesota person because they have a nice long O, right? You're not from Minnesota, you're from Minnesota. <laughs> Cheese and sprinkles. And 
Californians, you can identify by their accent because they say the word like every other word. Is that you guys just saying the word like a bunch of times? Because that's what it sounds like from up here. There are attributes. <laughs> Come back to me. Whoa. whoa. <laughs> Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Uh, there are attributes of people where they're from. They are identified by their roots. And this was true of these people that Paul had ministered to and that he was writing this letter to. These were people from Philippi in a crazy, barbaric, out-of-the-way place, far, far outside of Roman civilization on the Macedonian way called Philippi. It was founded and had a significant history, but it wasn't much of a, a place of significance until several generations before this letter was written. It was conquered by Rome. And Rome had a way, this super mega world power, of incorporating these colonies uh, to become Romans. Rather than crush them and destroy them, they were given an option. They were allowed to live. And it's really a good choice when you're allowed to either be crushed or live. And so the people of Philippi chose to live. And they weren't just allowed to live in some kind of captivity. Instead, when Rome would conquer a place, they would integrate those people into Roman society. And Roman society was actually very cool back then. It was good to be a part of Rome. You got all the benefits of being a Roman. In the ancient world, uh, it wasn't like today. You know, you get arrested today, you know, you've watched enough television shows that you must, you know, get your one phone call and demand to see your lawyer, right? Some of you, you know, that may happen to you before camp is over. You understand you have rights, you have protection by law. That wasn't the case unless you were a Roman citizen. You see, by conquering this place called Philippi, these people became Romans, and it was a desirable thing. They would dress like Romans. Uh, Romans had the fashion of the day. Togas were very comfortable. Romans spoke Latin and wrote in Latin, and so they would have even uh, adopted the language of Rome, the dress, the culture the rights and privileges of that society, everything in the lives of the people of Philippi was shaped by being part of a society that they had not, many of them, even been to. They'd never been to Rome proper. They'd never been to the Colosseum. They'd never met Caesar himself, but they were his subjects, and they had attributes and marks of Rome on them, and they had taken them on willingly, in a sense, because they were conquered. That wasn't willing, but they weren't destroyed. Instead, they were adopted. They were naturalized. They were made into citizens, and so they were a part of that society, just as if they had been born in the capital of the empire itself. And anyone in a Roman colony, anyone in Philippi would have gloried in this because they had all the rights and privileges of being Roman. They spoke their language, they copied their architecture, they uh, dressed like Romans, and they knew that it meant that every part of their life was shaped by a kingdom that they didn't just belong to, but it was their kingdom. They were Romans. 
They were citizens of Rome, but they weren't presently living in Rome. Philippi, all the way out there in Macedonia, was a very Roman place. And Paul knew this. Paul had been there. And Paul himself was a Roman citizen. And so he reminds them in this final part of the letter where he's telling them to press on, press on no matter what happens, no matter what persecution comes, continue on in your pursuit of Christ, in your passion for Christ, following my example. And then he reminds them of this reality. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as soon as those Philippians heard that word citizenship, they would have thought all that transpired to make them Romans. They would have looked at their clothes and seen Roman clothes. They would have looked at the, listened to their language and Roman language, Roman culture, Roman architecture. But Paul now adopts this word, this concept of citizenship that made a lot of sense to them, that was important to them, and tells them, look, yes, and Peter would go on to explain, you still have to be a citizen of the society you live in, but ultimately there is a stronger allegiance. There is an underlying identity, the reality of a Christian's self is that you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, are actually underneath it all, whether you're from Alaska or you're from Philippi or you're born in Rome itself, wherever you're from, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, ultimately you are a citizen of heaven. Your language is heavenly. Your dress is heavenly. Every aspect of your life is shaped by a place that you have not yet been to, but it's the only place that you truly and genuinely would truly feel at home. As these Philippians considered their identity as Roman citizens, Paul is putting a greater meaning meaning to that word citizenship. He tells them our citizenship, our belonging, our identity, our National character is in heaven. And he wants them to consider this identity. And he's going to tell them two things that citizens of heaven are marked by. Two ways that they look. Two ways that you could identify them. As easy as you'd identify a New Mexican by our fancy sombreros, you would identify a citizen of heaven by these two Marks. And the first one is in verse 20. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the first mark of a citizen of heaven? It's that we eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. We eagerly anticipate Jesus' return. How do you know that heaven is where you're destined to go? How do you know that the, the prayer that you prayed when you were a little kid to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior is real? How do you know that you are genuinely converted to Christ? And this isn't just a stage that you went through in your teenage years where you're part of a youth group in a church. 
How do you know you really belong to Christ? How do you know that this ends with you in heaven? Well, the first way you know that is that you eagerly long, you eagerly anticipate, you wait with patience for the return of Christ. Your posture is one that looks heavenward, longingly waiting for him to come. One author describes it this way, the eagerness of the waiting, which should characterize the expectant citizens, is wonderfully described by the apostles' expression for it, which literally means to look a way out. You know what waiting's like. You waited before this session for the doors to open. You waited to come into this room. And waiting is usually not a very active thing. It's a very passive thing. Some of you wait for the bus to take you to school. And it's not that fun because you're just waiting. Or you're waiting for your friend. Or you're waiting for your parents to pick you up because they forgot about you again. You're waiting to get the test score back to see if you have to be a sophomore again. You're waiting. There's not a lot involved in waiting usually. It's not our favorite activity. But for a Christian, waiting isn't passive, it's active. There's an eagerness to our waiting. And, and what this author was saying is that there's a looking out. It's a word that's used in other places of a sentry, a guard, a soldier who's on a walled city and his job is to keep a watch. And so he's on the wall of the city. The citizens of the city are inside. They're protected by the walls. But his job is to make sure no one's coming to burn this city down. And so he waits and watches with eager anticipation, with readiness, with a steady eye. He's looking forward, looking out, ready, with a skillful glance. He's eagerly looking forward to any moment where he can be the one who sounds the alarm, who calls the soldiers, who rescues the city if the need be. See how that's a more active word than just waiting for the bus. He's looking He's watching, he's careful, he's cautious, he's thoughtful, he's engaged. The worst thing a soldier like that could do would be to close his eyes, to go to sleep. But waiting with anticipation isn't a passive thing at all. That's why he uses a word that's compounded with this word eagerness. It's an eager waiting. And this is what the Bible says all over the New Testament about the return of Christ. Galatians 5.5, 5, for through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It's the same thing in 1 Corinthians. It says that as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, another example of waiting for Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 says the same thing. The Thessalonians were transformed and they waited for God's Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew 24, therefore be on the alert, do not, you do not know which day your Lord is coming. For this reason, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. 
Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whose master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus warns those who wait that they ought not to be unfaithful, they ought not to lose their vigilance, but they must wait with eager expectation. I have little kids that live at my house, age two, four, six, and eight. Who do we appreciate? Mom is the answer. Seriously, every time, mom. Two, four, six, and eight. One is actually seven, but the poem is messed up. So, two, four, seven, eight, who do we hate? It's not as good. So, the devil is the answer. So, our four little kids this weekend, their cousins were coming to town from the aforementioned New Mexico. Uh, two little cousins, they're same age, and for some reason, uh, they just have this great, wonderful bond with their cousins, and their cousins were driving in on Friday. I don't know how many times the kids asked if their cousins were there yet. They're clearly not here. The driveway is open. There is no car there. Whenever my wife would get a phone call from her sister, as she drove in, they would ask, how much longer till the cousins come? And finally, after hours, the cousins came. And there was such jubilant celebration screaming and fighting and punching and running and tearing. and It's like a whirlwind to this moment. And I had been reading this verse and reading about those words, eager anticipation, and I had to ask my own heart, have I ever had that kind of repetitious desire for the return of Christ in a day like that? Has there ever been a day where my desire to see Christ return was so strong that I kept looking at my watch, that I kept looking to the sky, that I kept wondering, is today the day that Jesus will come? You see, citizens of heaven eagerly await But it's not the the prize that we eagerly await ultimately. It's not the believer's reward that motivates us in this life to seek to honor Jesus Christ and live for him. Uh, We eagerly await not the, the parts of heaven that sound exciting to us, pearly gates or golden streets or meeting some historical hero or getting all your questions answered. Like, is there really quantum foam, God? That's my question. That's not what we long for. That's not what we anticipate. Those things are all secondary at most. We eagerly wait, according to verse 20, look what it says, we eagerly await a Savior from there, a reference to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our prize, our hope, the fulfillment of our desire, we're looking at our watch and we're looking at the sky and we're longing for a person to come, a man to come, a certain man, one who belongs in heaven, one who is in heaven, and one who promised he will be here to rescue us. If you're a citizen of heaven, you long for the return of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to a 
seriously flawed church called the Corinthian church in a letter to them. And at the end of that letter, he wrote, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then he ends that letter by saying, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Paul was provoked to utter a curse on the enemies of the cross because he knew that they were accursed. You do not love Jesus, you do not serve Jesus, you do not care for Jesus, there is a curse on your life and you will be under the wrath of God for all eternity, accursed. But the very next word to come off of Paul's pen is Maranatha, a word that means come quickly, Lord Jesus. True citizens of heaven are not content here. We're not perfectly fine to keep storing up stuff for ourselves. We're not satisfied with the, the, the happinesses of this life, the achievements that we have here. Everything that we experience in this life, even the greatest things, the greatest and even the most godly accomplishments, Whatever it is that, that motivates you to get through your high school career, uh, if, whether you're trying to achieve some sort of grade point average or trying to make some sort of uh, tournament for your team, whether it's a sports achievement or that you're just trying to survive, whether it's music that you love and live for or, or whether it's a relationship that you long to see happen, whatever it is that motivates you, all of those things relate relationships and the joys of this world and the pleasures that this world offers, all of those things, C.S. Lewis would call them just shadows of a deeper and greater and more lasting and more godly reality that is heaven. This world is not your home. There might be a ninth grader up in here who's starting to feel homesick. And I'm, I'm going to be sensitive here because I don't want anybody to cry and run out the back. So if you're feeling homesick, just suck it up. <laughs> but I think we've all felt that, right? You scoop the tapioca at the cafeteria and you think of mama's tapioca. The way she cuts up those maraschinos and puts them in there. Oh, mama's tapioca. Or maybe you miss your baby sister. It's okay. Don't cry. I remember the first time I was away from home for a long time. I spent four weeks in the Philippines, Mabuhai. And I was ready to stop sweating. This actually feels a lot like the Philippines. <laughs> and there was comforts of home that I missed. But the biggest bout of homesickness I ever had was when I was in Russia for two weeks when I'd only been married for three months. And I really, really missed my wife. And Russia is scary. <laughs> Not Russians, Russians are cool. If there's any Russians in the house, Slavo Bogo, everybody. But Russia's scary and frozen and rough. And the food is slimy. <laughs> and I really missed my new wife. 
and the little life that we had started together just months before. And I really, really, really wanted to go home. That homesickness, that longing should mark every citizen of heaven because we eagerly anticipate the day when Jesus returns physically, bodily, in the sky as he promised to call all his own to himself and take us to heaven forever. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one we've anticipated C.S. Lewis said it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You were. You were made in the image and likeness of God. You were made to know Him and you will only find true fulfillment not in any earthly achievement but only in a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that culminates in a world that is centered around that man, centered around God, centered around his purposes and his glory. Any blessing you receive in this life, whether it's a a wonderful meal or the opportunity to be married and have children or to have a career that's fulfilling to you, every one of those things is merely a shadow, not a reality, of a greater reality that stands behind it. In all eternity, every relationship points towards that greater, everlasting relationship. Every happiness points towards heaven's blissful happiness that's unending and unimpeded by any sinful activity or action whatsoever. Every moment of pleasure in this world, whether it's a popsicle or a brand new car, whether it's tiny or great, is only a mere shadow, a tiny drop, just an image of what is the reality of eternity with God, who in his presence is the fullness of joy. That's what citizens understand. Citizens are never fully content in this world. Nothing will truly and lastingly satisfy us here. And part of what some of you are experiencing right now as you follow after the longings of your heart, some of you following hard after the longings of your sinful heart, you are chasing down your lusts. You are trying to satisfy your glands and go after what your bodily appetites want. You know what? When you go, you will find you will never, ever, ever be satisfied. You could live your whole life in pursuit of sexual pleasure. You could live your whole life in pursuit of financial gain, but you will never, ever satisfy the longing that every creature made in God's image and likeness has within your soul. You will not find happiness. You will not find rest. You will not find joy apart from Jesus. And I can tell you that until I sweat my whole face off. But you know what? You can't hear me. You can't. 
because some of you are so indifferent to spiritual things. Some of you have no appetite for spiritual things. Some of you don't have a taste bud on your tongue that could tell you that heaven is sweet, that God is glorious, that Jesus is matchless. Some of you don't get it because you're blind. Blind because you've chased after your sin and you think it's your sin that will satisfy you. You are living in a slum. This world is a trash pit. And the things that this world offers will give you some immediate release, a little bit of satisfaction. But I'm telling you, that cycle will only lead to your destruction and only lead to your judgment. And you will suffer such agony and such loss and such remorse and such sorrow when you realize what a fool you've been because you didn't give your life to Christ when you were young. Now, here, this week, the gates of heaven are flung wide open to you. What is it that's holding you back again? What is it that's more valuable than your maker? What is it that's more precious to you than the joys of eternal heaven? What is it that's more satisfying to you than knowing that you are made to be a citizen in God's world and that the deepest longings of your soul will only be realized in his presence? I mean, I'm up here pleading with you because I know that although you don't have ears to hear many of you, your hearts are hard to the gospel. All you care about is yourself. I know that God is able to change you. And I know that God has changed many of you and you're nodding right now because you know you used to follow after your lust. You used to follow after your sinful desires. You used to only promote yourself, and now you love Jesus. And it's something that God worked in you. And so I'm pleading with the rest of you to open your eyes and ask God to do so, to make your heart soft and sensitive to eternal realities because the, the greatest mark of a citizen of heaven is that we long eagerly anticipate the return of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second mark I want you to see. And it's the mark that ties into our message this morning. Look at verse 21. It says, who, talking about Jesus, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Hmm. <laughs> I love that. That description is the second mark of a true citizen from heaven. First mark is we eagerly await our Savior, Jesus Christ. The second mark of a citizen of heaven is we will be transformed. We will be transformed. And that looks like a lot of things in our life. Let me explain to you what it means. He says, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control this is a reference to the ultimate power 
of God. God's power is limitless. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He is able to be, he is able to accomplish all that he desires to accomplish. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the power, the strength of God. And Jesus, by his very claim and by the vindication of his resurrection, is God, a very God. So Jesus is the one who has the power to bring everything under his control. You could learn more about this in Colossians chapter 1, where it calls him the preeminent one. He is the first place in all of creation, meaning he is over everything. That it was God, that it was in his triune goodness that he spoke this universe and that massive ocean and every single human being into existence. Every soul was created by God. Every creature was made by God. Every mountain range was made by God. That's a glimpse of his power. His authority, though, is over every king, over every nation, over every human decision. There is nothing that is outside of the sphere of God's kingship. This is his sovereignty. It is that sovereign power that's on display in verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, while everything is under his control, and though this world looks like it spins out of control as people do uh, sin and people do make decisions and people do follow after things that God has forbid, it looks like the world is not under control. But if you read the rest of this Bible, you'll understand that a time is coming when God will demonstrate that he is in full and final control of every king, every nation, every human soul, and everyone's destiny. Every knee will bow, it says in the same letter, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You'll either do that now, willingly and joyfully, as God transforms your hard heart to love Jesus and serve Jesus, or you'll do that on a day of judgment when you will bow because God is over you and God has finally broken your will and he's about to consign you to eternal judgment. But eventually you'll see how the God who held this entire world together by his mere force of will and mind and sovereignty will in fact be vindicated that he does control this world. What kind of power is that? It's greater than the power of every army on earth it's greater than the, the, the most powerful force that science could come up with. It's ba- greater than, than the power of 10,000 suns. It is the power of God. And it's that same power that gives us the second mark of transformation. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, a true citizen of heaven knows that they're longing for the return of Jesus, but secondly, is that their prospect, their future, is all about the world to come. It has everything to do with the way you think about your life choices, about your relationships, about your physical body, I mean, if you really genuinely believe that your body will be changed by God's great power into a body like Jesus' body, and he's talking about your physical body here, that should give great hope to you. 
Some of you were born with a physical disability. And this verse and verses like it, 1 Corinthians 15, are incredible promises to you that you hold to strongly because you know that you will not be handicapped forever. You know you will not be disabled forever. Some of you are born with great disadvantages physically, but you know that that is only going to last for this season called your earthly life, but you will be transformed physically, perfected, glorified, made complete, that the most physically prowess, athletically gifted person here is merely a weak image of what you will be when you are glorified. The idea isn't that we're all going to be superheroes. We're all going to look like Bane guy, Morty Mort. That's not the idea. It's not that we'll all be perfect physical specimens and supermodels when we get to heaven. Not even close. The idea isn't our physical appearance. It's our ability to endure forever the glory of God. We will be transformed so that we can take in the eternal joys of heaven. What you don't understand, most of you, is that your hair is going to fall out. What you don't understand, most of you, is that you will become creakier than you used to be, even if it's just mildly creakier. And the day will come when that creakiness expands and you'll need to get your hip replaced. Yep, they'll just saw it out of there, put in a new hip, and it'll give you like 10 more years. And you'll know when it's gonna rain. <laughs> and you'll tell those kids coming home from Regen, your grandkids, Regen still exists 75 years from now. You'll tell those kids, kids, stay off my lawn because that'll matter to you then. What I'm trying to tell you is that you are going to get old, decrepit, and what was this morning's message about? You are going to, good, everybody got the positive message from this morning. It's going to happen, and it usually happens gradually. Sometimes you get eaten by a shark and it happens right away. But whatever forces take place, your body is deteriorating. And the message of 1 Corinthians 15, which is kind of a parallel to this verse, is that God's incredible power is going to transform your body so that even if you die and turn into dust physically, which is what happens to you as you decompose and perish, God will raise you up and make you new. And he will suit you in such a way that you will be set for all eternity. There will be no deterioration. There will be no sickness. There will be no tears. There will be no hardships. There will be no injuries. There will be no night. There will be nothing unclean. There will be no sun in that city. There will be no mourning. There will be no crying. There will be no pain. There will be no death. There will be no spiritual thirst. There will be no unforgiven sinner. There will be no curse. And there will be no one whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. That is what's awaiting you in heaven, a glorified existence where you will be able to take in and fully appreciate the glory of God in Christ. This doesn't mean that you'll just spend 
the entirety of heaven listening to sermons and singing worship songs till your head hurts. It means that that world is more real than this world. That any adventure, that any joy in this world will be multiplied a million times in the world to come. It's not a less physical world. It's a real place with real people who live in the presence of a real God, who inhabit a real city, who worship God as he was intended to be worshiped and live in perfectly restored Edenic wonder, praise, joy, everlastingly. This matters because the body you have now isn't going to cut it for another hundred years. And it certainly won't last for 300. And it certainly won't last for 3,000. And there's no way you're going to hold up in that frame, no matter how many times you've been to 24-hour fitness. You're not going to last for 3 million years unless God changes you radically. And that's exactly what he promises to do with the same power that is his sovereign will over all things. He will transform our lowly bodies, our insignificant bodies. It's the phrase, the body of our humiliation or the body of our humble state. He's not making fun of your body. He's just comparing it to the body that is to come. John Murray describes glorification as the complete and final redemption of the whole person when the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God, will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer when their body of humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. What a future. What a reality is in store for us but none of this is yours if you're not in Christ. Instead, you will be suited with a body that will endure destruction forever. And that's what I want to talk to you about tomorrow night. I already quoted C.S. Lewis too many times in one sermon, but when I was a kid, I loved reading those Narnia books. And the last one is called The Last Battle. And it describes this culmination of all the adventures that these children had had in Narnia. It's a book about a homecoming. And there's a character in that book. It's a cream white colored unicorn. And her name, is it a boy or a girl? I can't remember. It's a boy, yeah, but he's got a girl name. His name is Jewel. He's a horse. I mean, he can have a name called Jewel. And he is the best friend of this king, and they have these great adventures together, and he's kind of a mouthy horse. I just really have sweet memories of this unicorn named Jewel. Well, Jewel dies. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> In this final battle, 
But because of his allegiance to Aslan, Jewel gets to stay in Aslan's land. And this is what this mouthy horse says. I have come home at last. He'd never been to Aslan's land before. But now he's seeing it and he looks around and says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life. And though I never knew it till now, the reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little bit like this. And then he makes a horse sound. Lewis wrote, Bree hee hee, which I think is. <laughs> and the horse says, Come further up. Come further in. It was a familiar world that for the inhabitants of that world, citizens of heaven, when you arrive at heaven, when Jesus comes back for you, when you are glorified and your citizenship is fully and finally vindicated, you will likewise say, I have come home at last. And all the things you love about the concept of home will be there without any of the sin, without any of the fractured relationships, without any of the hard parts hearts, only with the joy, you will say, I have come home at last. You will say, this is my real country. You will say, I belong here. And you will speak those words in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one whom you eagerly anticipated. And you will say, this is the land that I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now, the way that you know it then. And you will remember things about this earthly life that were in your life now wonderful things, but they will just be mere shadows of the eternal joys and realities that are yours in God's heavenly country. You'll be like a white cream-colored unicorn or you'll be like Abraham in Hebrews 11, who wondered in this life what city he belonged to until he realized that he was being drawn towards God's heavenly, eternal city. And the author of that book says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city, and it's an everlasting one. Father, I pray that you would help us to be suited for eternity, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, 
that we would recognize how much more valuable eternity is than the fleeting pleasures of Egypt. That you would draw us, God, heart, soul, and strength to a saving knowledge of Christ. While you're sitting there praying, just keep, keep praying, keep thinking. I have to ask you, are you going to heaven? Do you have any assurance that you'll be there? I mean, do you know if you know Christ? Is this something you're willing to be unsure of? Right now, in the stillness of your own heart, I want you to speak to God. The God who gave you His own Son. The God who made a way for you to be in heaven with Him forever. Young friend, would you give up your sin? Would you give up your sin and embrace the forgiveness that is in Christ? Because if you would do that, you would be changed forever. Your life would be completely different. Your desires would be transformed. Your goals would change. Your relationships would change. It will cost you everything to follow Jesus. But you will gain eternity and heaven and God. So speak to him right now. He hears your prayers. He's made provision for your sin. Call out to his son. Father, help these friends do business with you right now. And as we sing these songs, may these true words become true in hearts. Not empty words, not hypocritical words, but true words that we sing together because we love you and believe you and hate our sin. May we embrace Jesus with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. May you be our first priority as we recognize our citizenship is in heaven.